Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of February 2022. It is, um, yeah, we're moving on towards the spring equinox. We are gaining almost five minutes a day, I think four and a half minutes of daylight a day, and I'm starting to notice it in the evenings. Well, afternoons still, but definitely the sun is setting later. I'm recording this here in the studio on Saturday, the day before this airs. I have with me Kitty Labounty. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. So, yeah, it is something that we should talk about is the weather. It has been a little wet recently. Horrendous. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure I would call it horrendous. I've been a little excited by the amount of rain we've been having, actually. It has been, yes, wet. We actually started the year, the first day of the year, I think, had a half an inch of rain. So it was a wet start to the year. But then after that, it probably got cold and dry. And much of January was below average. And I've been watching the rainfall totals accumulate, and we've been pushing closer and closer to double the amount of rain for the year. And that's been kind of exciting for me for no good reason, except for that I'm excited by trivia. And so as of this past week, we crossed 200% of normal. That is twice the normal amount of rainfall. As of Friday, so the, the data hasn't come in for Saturday as we're recording this, but as of Friday, we have 11.2 inches more than normal, and the normal value is 10.75. So the math checkout, we're, our departure is greater than the normal, so we are more than 200 inches, uh, more than 200% of like, normal. Wait. 200 <laughs> inches is a little too much, yeah. <laughs> that would be, yes, that would be way too much. That would be a, that would be a wet year. <laughs> I think you might even agree that that was too much if it, if it went, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> if it went for a whole year, yeah, that's for sure. It was like everything's sliding down the mountains. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there are probably places that are getting 200 inches of rain, but if that was at the airport, um, then those places would be getting a lot more. But so far to this point in the year, as of, again, Thursday, we have 21.95 inches of rain since the 1st of January. It's actually going to be over 23 probably by the end of uh, today as as we had a fair amount of rain. Hopefully, as folks are listening to this, the weather forecast holds up and it's a relatively dry Sunday. It has turned nice. We have a little bit of sun shining in the window here as we're recording this here on Saturday. I think at the end of that, I'm supposed to say from your mouth to God's ears. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> forecasts sometimes hold up. You know, so overall, we're at 200% of normal. But as I mentioned, the first week or actually most of January, we were trending below normal for precipitation. Then we had six and a half inches of rain in two days, and that, that changed that. Uh, and then February has continued the wet spell. We've had rain every single day of the month. Uh, our total amount of rain so far this month is 9.37 inches. And our normal value for rain to this point in February is 2.53 inches. So we are 6.84 inches above normal for this part of the month. And so that puts us at 370% of normal, which is another exciting number. So the problem, I want to actually sum this up for the listeners. It has been raining a lot and the statistics are interesting. The numbers are interesting and Matt's really excited about it. Yes, that is a fair assessment. (laughs) Not everybody shares my enthusiasm for high rainfall totals. Um, We actually also got into the top 10 of streaks for days with Mm -hmm. a half an inch of rain, at least. (laughs) We had starting on last, on the third, we had 1.84 inches, then another inch on the fourth, over an inch on the fifth. So that's three days in a row. Then we had a couple of what passed for dry days as two thirds of an inch and half an inch, then back over an inch again on, I think, Tuesday and Wednesday of this past week. Thursday was dry. It only had mm-hmm. five, five hundredths of an inch. 
And then Friday, we had uh, almost an inch again, and it looks like today, because of rain overnight uh, into the Saturday day, um, will total about an inch as well. So if only we'd had that half an inch on Thursday, we could have uh, actually got to the 10-day streak, which would be the record for (laughs) number of days with half an inch of rain. I sense a little sarcasm with your woohooness there, well, but um, I, I, maybe a little. I did share some of that information with my class. I have one class that has to go out and observe in in nature um, every week. They can pick the day, you know, but they have to do it once a week and they have to spend a certain amount of time out there. I was kind of like, I'm sorry that it's been so darn wet. You kind of still have to do this. I mean, you just do have to still deal with this and, you know, dress appropriately and all that. But I said, I I feel your pain. I understand it. But get on out there. There's interesting stuff to see when it's raining out. Totally. I mean, the trail's completely covered with water. <laughs> I like. To, I always like to go observe the the rivers and see how high they're flowing and and sort of observe flood stage. And I do tend to spend a little more time in my car when I'm out on. So I'm observing from the car, looking at birds and that kind of thing. Um, but once I'm out, I actually went up a little ways up Gavin Hill on one of the wet days. It wasn't raining when I headed out, but I had worn my rain gear and was sort of hoping to get back before the rain started. But I didn't. And when I'm out in it, I actually don't mind. It's just, you, usually, just raining. Yeah, usually once I leave the house and I'm dressed, it's okay. But listening to it on the metal roof, you're like, oh my gosh, I ain't going out there. Um, then you go out and it's like, it's okay. Now, don't mistake this. <laughs> I still prefer a, a few more breaks with the rain. I, you know, I, I'm a reasonable sitkin. I, I don't want it to stop raining. That would be bad for our whole ecosystem. But maybe just a little, you know, tapered off. One thing I did appreciate about the rain, and this was more in the January part of the wet spell, is that it melted the snow and ice off uh, more quickly. It was a little bit sloppy out. <laughs> it was brutal, our, actually, for walking. Cold, cold spell, so it's a little easier to get around. So there are pluses as well, in addition to just tracking the weather trivia and, and those sorts of things. But it's part of what I enjoy about paying attention to things is just noticing all those little bits. You did remind me about the bird count day. That was probably the most brutal bird count ever because it had, there was lots of snow and ice and then it rained on top of it. And it was just like ice skating everywhere. It was it was awful. So it was definitely kind of hard work walking in some places, at least the route that I had. I, I wore my, my heavy-duty grippers about half the time. And, and I learned that if you wear heavy-duty grippers, you really have to not turn around and end up pigeon-toed because you end up on your face. Um <laughs> Yes. Anyway, that was just a little aside. <laughs> well, that was the Christmas bird count this year was the 2nd of January. January, I believe. So the first we'd had half an inch of rain after some snow and cold. and it. But the second, it hadn't quite cooled off again yet. So it was in that still wet where the ice is sort of it's maximally just, slippery. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. <laughs> yeah. I did a lot of walking that day, and it was windy that day. Actually, I think it was just starting to get cold, but yep. it, was, it was windy that day. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> lots of lots of weather uh, to pay attention to. But it is, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're gaining a lot of daylight. Our, it's still light. Uh, sun is setting just a little bit before 5 p.m. right now. And still quite light uh, at that time, you know, and getting dark after that. Depending on the thickness of the clouds, of course, that makes a big difference. Uh, and we have had some thick clouds lately. But <laughs> it's the time of year when it's not really spring, but things are starting to move. Uh, and I think what's mostly happening is that birds are moving around locally. Mm-hmm. And so the gulls are, are sort of moving around and the waterfowl are starting to move around. 
And so it's a time of year that, like when I'm out, sometimes I'll see new birds for the year. Not, and I don't think they've come from far away. I think they probably were like wintering in a d- different bay earlier in the winter and have moved in to someplace I see them more easily from town. Uh, I think the the things under the water are starting to move. Whales have started to show up. In um, they've been sea around, lions. yeah, whales and sea lions, especially out at um, Star Gavin mm-hmm. off Kellyanne Bay in town. Here, there's there's been some of those. So it's uh, for me at least, I'm starting to feel the the, the movements of, of spring. It's definitely not spring yet. Uh, if you have crocuses, sometimes this time of year they're up, but probably not this year. I, I think some people's snowdrops are up in town. Mine mm. aren't yet. I My witch hazel, my winter blooming witch hazel, actually finally started to bloom. Um, I'm not sure what was going on with it. Usually it starts blooming a little bit earlier, but it's just starting right now. So I have that, that little kick of of color, which actually looks better on a snowy background because it's kind of an orange, yeah. a dark orange. But Well, we're definitely not out of winter yet. We could still have cold snaps we could still have snow uh, yes. into cold snaps for sure through march and it seems like they the probability of those showing up drops off pretty dramatically by the end of march um, but snow still into yeah. april i, I so. did have a little chat with the blueberry bushes out in the you know on my lot and <laughs> some of the other plants going we're not really there yet please don't break dormancy it's not time <laughs> yeah it's always a little bit of a bummer i mean I always appreciate a February warm warm spell where you get some sun and it's warm and it feels nice out. But the bummer is if the plants then, like especially the blueberries and the salmonberries, can can put their buds out or flowers out pretty early and then just get hammered in a in right. a fr- hard it, it freeze. Happen. That's kind of our problem with yellow cedars too. Yeah. Um, in certain locations. So eh, yeah. So I'm kind of hoping it doesn't get too warm. Um, sun's good, um, but maybe keep the temperatures cool, but not too cold, or just pile us on with snow again, which yes. is not popular with anybody but me. <laughs> I, I don't. I enjoy the snow uh, while it's here, but uh, also is um, one of those things that I could. Um, I don't mind. It's easier to get around, certainly. When I like seeing snow in the mountains, but it's easier to get around at sea level if there's not a lot of snow on the ground. I did. It, it was difficult keeping up with a half a mile of boardwalk shoveling Oh, I snow. bet, yeah. <laughs> keeping That's that all for shoveled. sure. Um, but yes. So anyway, everyone likes a different kind of weather. I think in the end, um, a little bit of variability or change sometimes is kind of fun. Yeah, and some folks... Um, unlike me, enjoy traveling to other places to get a, a different flavor of weather. I know you've got plans to dry out a little bit. Uh, and as I've been expressing over the last week or two, my excitement about the, the rainy wet records, you're, you're like, uh, more reason to go to Arizona. Hat. <laughs> yeah. Got my tickets. <laughs> so going to Arizona is um, one way to get a little bit of a different weather experience with uh the expectation being that it will be dry and, and certainly will be warmer there. I guess it could theoretically it, be cool gets, if you were in the It actually mountains. gets cold in, in the mountains in the evening. And actually, at lower, it's not lower elevations, not in the mountains. Um, it can also get kind of cold in mm. the evening. Um, there's really there's no clouds to hold the warm air in. So. And it's relatively high elevations, yeah. mostly. Yeah, but I, I do like to go down there because... It's not just because it's warm and and sunny and dry. It's because it's really interesting ecosystems that are down there. So I enjoy seeing the desert and the desert plants and the desert birds and the desert animals. And then I really like to go visit the Sky Islands that are down there. So the little peaky mountains that, um, especially in southern Arizona, are the ones that I'm most familiar with, um, like Madeira 
um, it's Madera Canyon. The pathetic part is I can't remember the name of the actual mountain. Someone will giggle at me later on. So but the Chiricahuas? No, the Chiricahuas are in, they're, they're in Arizona, but they're on the New Mexico border. Mm. Um, another sort of place. But it's cool because you see kind of this change in vegetation um, from the desert up to, basically to a coniferous forest. Um, so you can just hike right out of the desert up high and just see this amazing and very interesting gradation of vegetation. And the birds are different up there as well. Yeah, it's super fun. So it is uh, an interesting, and I know a lot of folks like to travel to the southwest or, or someplace warm and sunny for at least part of the part of the winter season here, the dark season here. Uh, and that that makes sense to me in principle, although I, I enjoy just hanging out and seeing what's happening throughout. So I'm a little I, I, weird that way. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I saw a picture of a, a group of women in Arizona with their spinning wheels outside and their shirts on and their sun hats. And I was like, oh, that looks like fun. <laughs> and here I am with my spinning wheels out in the living room. It's like, okay, the fire's going. <laughs> I have my yeah. fluffy socks. <laughs> yeah, it seems like being by the fireplace. There's something something nice it's, about. It's all very. It's all good. It, being it's, by the fireplace. It's, yeah. it's always you know the grass is always greener on the other side. Yes, that's true. I, I think that's the whole deal. I yeah, I would take many many days of rain before I would want to be in hundred degree heat for more than five minutes. I think. Yeah, I'm um, a little odd in the, in the fact that sometimes that just feels plain old good. I mean, yeah. it's brutal. I don't stand out in the the sun. You know, when it's that, I at least have a big sun hat or a parasol. Um, I'm one of those people that uses an umbrella in Sitka and a parasol in Arizona, and I'm I'm quite happy to use those tools to um, moderate the weather. Yes, I mean it is. It, we do have handy handy things to uh, help us. It, this this season has definitely helped me not take for granted the comforts of a dry house and a nice roof that doesn't leak and all of those things that uh, <laughs> that could be real, boat. <laughs> a, a real problem yeah self-bailing boats probably real handy uh, super handy when this, this kind of weather yeah. yes so it has been an interesting year so far as i mean every year is interesting in its own way i suppose uh, it is a time of year we are moving we were talking about i was talking about the birds starting to move around a little bit and i know one of the things that you wanted to mention is that we're and we already did talk about the Christmas bird count, which happened uh, at, on the 2nd of January here. But there is another bird count that's happening. Is it the Great Backyard Bird Count, I yes, think, is the, the name of it? Yes, the Great Backyard Bird Count. And if I remember what eBird told me, it's the 25th year of this Great Backyard yeah, Bird Count. Yeah, I think I saw that as well. Um, this year, it's February 18th through the 21st. So it's four days, which is actually kind of nice. Yeah. You know, so it's not like, okay, here's this one day, then you can do this. And you better power through that day no matter what. Um, there's, there's four days. And really, all they ask of you is that you, when you count at a certain spot, you count for 15 minutes at that spot. And that's mm. all. Um, so it's, it's pretty painless. Um, I enjoy it. It actually, if it's raining, stuff like that actually helps me get outside and enjoy myself when I might just be like, you know, (laughs) and trying to avoid it. But I'm like, oh, here's something I'm going outside to do. The data, um, gets used. I mean, it it all gets entered in eBird. So, you know, they, they, they have ways to sift through that data to kind of see, you know, what's being seen in an area. You know, I'm sure they have calibrations for effort as well and the huge amount of variation that occurs in any given year but i really enjoy doing that 
Yeah, it is one that I've participated in the past, and I guess by default, I've been I've been on a I'm on a 400 plus day streak. That's part of the ways that I motivate myself is numbers, you know, as as one might guess from my excitement mm-hmm. about the, the rainfall <laughs> totals. But uh, starting last year, at the beginning of the year, I decided I would enter at least one eBird checklist every day, and so I've been doing that for now 407 days. So nice. basically, to the beginning of 2021, also maintaining a similar sort of streak on iNaturalist. Um, but I did miss a day in January of mm. 2021, which annoyed me later. So that makes me met less likely to miss a day going forward because mm-hmm. because of, of that. But that's one of the things that you can say is a motivation to get out sometimes. When I'm out in the weather, I don't usually mind it. Um, it is easy to be inside and look outside and go, mm, mm, no thanks. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. but it is. So the bird count, it's... Um, the other thing that sort of motivates me because I have a little bit of a competitive streak is that you can see the communities in the state. So you can say, are we getting more birds than Ketchikan or Kodiak or Juno or... Never Gustavus, but we try. Gustavus gets a lot of birds. <laughs> Homer's another one that gets yeah. a lot of birds. So. I, at least one of the years, you and I were like determined that we were going I to think beat. We did, I think we did get more than everybody else one yeah, year. Yeah, but we worked really hard. It was, yeah, I think, we, I mean, like in a, and, in a fun, yeah. hard way, you know, yeah. not like, oh my gosh, okay. We, we spent a lot of time at it. We spent it a lot way, of time yeah. at it. And it was fun time spent um but i will probably i'm sure i'll do it i'll try actually that's a day that i probably will try to do a checklist every day um so so to be clear this is next friday as if you're listening to this on the radio it's friday the 18th 18th, saturday the 19th sunday the 20th and then the 21st is that like a holiday i think that's yeah it must be president president's day i think it's when they usually have it scheduled for that four-day weekend. And it's pretty much anywhere in the Sitka area. So, right. I mean, it's and you can participate anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. So, <laughs> Sitka, nice if, if you're going to contribute to the Sitka totals, then it would be in the Sitka area. Right. But, but if you're in Tenneke Springs, you can count. If you're in Cake, wherever you are, that you can hear our voices, you can count. That's true. And and there's some weird, and it's the way it's set up on eBird is your totals would count towards the community, and the community is based on the boroughs in Southeast Alaska. So, Gustavus at this point is part of uh, it's Angoon, Skagway. Uh, Gustavus, I, I think, is all part yeah, of the same. Yeah, and actually, that's statewide. So you have to know if, if for some reason your town isn't in there, you need to know the borough. Um, so there is a borough map mm. that is um, that I found on the web. I actually have to share this with my students as well because, of course, I have my students participate in this. And some places don't have, you know, so if you're in, where is it? Oh, it was Gamble. I was trying to find the birds for Gamble, and I had to go through Nome, and right. I didn't it's realize that Nome, I had yeah. to do that. I think another one, actually, Homer might. You have to Homer's go through part of the Kenai Peninsula. Kenai Peninsula, yeah. so you have to. It, you do have to kind of look at that burrows. We've got it easy here in Sitka. Um, yes, <laughs> and Juno, Ketchikan as well. Yeah. Um, Ketchikan might actually. I can't remember how Ketchikan split up. There's also one of the burrows is called. Prince of Prince of Wales and Outer Ketchikan or something like mm. that. It's it's a little strange. I don't don't fully understand it. Haven't looked into it in enough detail. But the other thing you can do is if you have a smartphone, you can download the eBird app. Yes, and it will use the GPS to suggest a location for you. Um, yeah, no, so it's very can, very handy. You can do it that way if you don't want to do it on the computer. But yeah, you can also just keep notes during the day, add your observations in on the computer in the evening or whenever you want, uh, and that's eBird.org. 
um, or just or you go- can Google, Google great backyard bird count. Yeah, that would be another. Uh, and then it, it goes through, you know, how to participate. They even have little helpful videos or something like that if you're new to it or more curious um, for more details about it. Um, but basically, the platform for entering birds is through eBird, which is a free download for your phone. The other thing you can put on your phone if you're kind of new to birding is the Merlin app, um, which helps you identify the birds <laughs> in your area. <laughs> yes. Merlin app can be helpful, especially if you're just getting started. It is not infallible. No. Uh, especially seen, not the, the, the song sound recognition one. <laughs> I have seen some, I've seen some reports come in of things that I was like, mm, probably that's, I probably know what that is based on what it suggested and based on knowing what's around. But it's probably not what it actually is. Right. I mean, it's like all so, tools. You know, yeah. it, you, you still have to sift through. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the things I also tell my students, if you're not really sure which gull it is, just count it as a gull. Yeah. You know, there's no need to like, oh, I must cram this into this, this particular species. Right. Yeah. And that's always, and you can do that with finches. You can do that. Actually, I think they even have songbird. So yeah, I think so too. So if you know so it's a too. songbird, then, then you can just call it a songbird. So there's lots of ways to just kind of, Start start with what you know and and move from there. It's a, a process to learn learn things over time, and I don't know. It's a process I enjoy. Many people enjoy just kind of, and and you can take it at your own. I mean, birding in general and mm-hmm. natural history in general. It is you know take it at your own sort of pace and and interest level. And you know the the main idea is that you're getting out and you're enjoying the natural world out there. It's you know, there's all sorts of health benefits and all that. I don't really do, that's not why I do it, but it's a, it's a, it is nice to be outside. I I agree. And I, yeah, Um, I think that does. And having, you notice more, the more time you're outside, the more you notice, I think, especially if you go a little bit slower. I mean, you, you still notice things when you're, you're, you're doing your daily walk over the bridge or whatever you're doing, if you're doing it at a pace. Um, But if, you slow down every once in a while to look at things. It's like, ooh. There was a there was an interesting comic. I think somebody somebody shared. I'd, I'd seen mm. it. <laughs> it was uh, it was you know people going for a walk, and one of them was a naturalist, and they're like. And somebody says, oh, I'm excited to go for with a naturalist. And then the next few panels are all these exciting <laughs> things that they're finding. And, and then the last panel is the person saying, we, we've been gone for an hour and we've only gone three feet. And the naturalist thinks, says, but what an amazing three feet it was. <laughs> uh, so that sometimes balance can, in the world. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it can be a little like that. Um, depends on depends on the thing, or just stopping and seeing. Like as you stop and you, you settle. One thing is that the birds will often get come closer, especially if you have a feeder in your yard, you just sit out in your yard. And, and especially if you do that regularly, it's, it's many of the same birds are coming back to your yard day after day. And so they learn you. And over time you can learn them, you know, as individuals. Mm -hmm. And so they get used to you and your patterns. And I've noticed, I don't do a lot of yard work, but sometimes when I do yard work, uh, that the birds, they don't seem to care as long as I'm doing my thing right. and kind of in a in a in a calm sort of what we might call a baseline sort of state of, mm-hmm. of not really moving. Like like I'm fairly predictable and I don't seem alarming. And the birds will kind of go about their things and I can pause and I can watch them and sometimes they'll be pretty close and and we sort of develop a little bit of a relationship in that way, I guess, where where we recognize each other. Um, but if you're just like yanking open your door and stepping outside, 
um, what you <laughs> might end up finding. Or walking is, up to your house. <laughs> yeah, or walking up to your house, you know, your mind somewhere else, your head's down looking at your feet or whatever, that the birds are actually, even if you stopped in that moment, you probably wouldn't see so many birds because they're like, whoa, we don't know what to do with this. It's a little little too much for us. So we're going we're gonna to disappear for a moment. And then when that goes away, we'll, we'll come back yeah. again. I do have a song sparrow that I think lives under my woodshed, which is right across from the front porch, and which is a covered sort of front porch with one wall. So there's kind of only one way in and out. And Song Sparrow does not like it when we walk up to the boardwalk. Especially, it, I think it, it like snoops around in the porch looking for whatever. Mm. I sometimes put some feed out, but I usually put it outside. But it's in there and it does not like us coming up. And actually, I usually stop if I see it because it tries to go into the window and all sorts of other horrible things that are not good for Song Sparrows. Yeah, if you start to notice that it is possible to yeah just pause and, and wait and usually and, leaves yeah Turns off. I, you know i just they'll wait. leave in a more calm fashion instead yes. of like frightened fashion and yes. yeah with the pine siskins that have been showing up lately i've i've heard a couple of thumps on my windows because they're a little because they are often they're you know, the like, ones that almost always hit the windows at my yeah. house Almost nobody else in in normal time of year. Sometimes when they're, it's that late summer when there's lots of berries around. Sometimes the very thrushes will hit the window, but not as often. But the siskins, when I see them, they almost always hit the window. Yeah, it seems it's to like be something nuts. about the way they fly and the flocks and the way that they're sort of like, will startle each other almost. It's yeah. like sometimes, I mean... To be fair, they're targets of, uh, you know, one of the main targets of sharp shin hawks and uh, other raptors. So small raptors that like to to get to get after birds. They're just jumpy. So so it probably justifiably. Yeah. Although, on the other hand, they're also one of the least wary birds. Like I've I've literally picked them up uh, in my Mm -hmm. hand by sitting with sitting where I had food spread. And they would come and they'd come and they'd start crawling on me and I could reach down slowly and I could pick one up off the ground and, and hold it in my hand. So in some ways they're really not very wary, but then when they spook, they all spook right. <laughs> and they don't necessarily. So that's when they tend to hit the windows yeah. is when they spook. I, I think. don't think I've ever had a chickadee hit the window. Yeah, chickadees seem to be a little little um, smarter about that for whatever reason. Yeah. But I also think that they're probably like they know the area. The siskins are moving around so much. Chickadees right. are pretty resident to a particular neighborhood, particular yards even. Oh, yeah. No, I think mine know me. They're like, yeah. they see me coming out the door with food and they like just hang back just a little bit. <laughs> oh, they're ready for you. They're like, okay, come yeah. on. <laughs> you ever had any knock on the window say, hey, come uh, feed us? The crows will actually knock on the window and ask me where the food is. <laughs> <laughs> I see. You could, you could put a lot of food out to Yeah, I, I actually usually end up hiding the bird feeder. Um when I when I go to town, when the crows come, because and the, it's not just that they eat all the food; they make such a mess on the deck too. I like crows; I don't mind them, but it's like, oh my gosh! Yeah, it is an interesting um, challenge. Crows and pigeons are another one that can go through the food, and some people really enjoy feeding them, and we'll just keep putting food out for them. And some people, and I would count myself in that, don't really want to bust my budget on bird food, so no, <laughs> prefer to feed the. Feed these small birds, um, but the cr- I mean, I do like watching the crows. The crows are actually pretty entertaining, and some there's some of them are so smart. It's actually really fun. So I have a hanging bird feeder, and I have one crow that is figured out, and I think it's always the same crow. It perches on the deck and just puts its bill very delicately into the bird feeder. So it's not making a mess. The other crows will come and like knock the bird feeder like all over the place. So the bird seed goes everywhere. But this one will just reach in delicately. And when it's just by himself or herself, I usually don't like 
wave my napkin at it through the window or something. But if it's whole group of friends are there, I'm like, okay, dude, we're done. <laughs> yeah. You probably don't have pigeons out on the no, island. Even, you know? I don't think I've ever seen a pigeon out there. We have pigeons in most neighborhoods in town. If you have bird feed out, they'll, they'll find you eventually. And um, my sons use chicken wire to sort of build exclosures. So, so put a chicken wire sort mm. of globe around the, um, around the feeder and the small birds can fly through the chicken wire up to the size of like uh, the larger song, uh, sparrows and even I think starlings can get in, which isn't necessarily what we want, but that it does keep out the crows and it keeps out the pigeons. So if you're not wanting to feed those chicken wire can be a, uh, a way to discourage them. Also with crows in particular, they don't like dead crows and you can get, um, you can get uh, Victoria, Victoria Vosberg had success with a, some success with a, a fake crow. It worked with her, so I yeah. I ordered a couple. Yeah, um, my crows just were like they whatever, care. dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they looked at for it like it took a day, but after that, they were like, it's just we're not we're mm. not going for so, it. So yeah, I mean, I and I'm not going to shoot a crow and hang it out there. Yeah, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. Well, and the she said she had to move the crow a couple of times right. every once in a while yeah. move it around but but it was something that disturbed her, her the crows at her feeder anyway right. but it I, sounds like your crows are much less concerned yes <laughs> so. i did try that actually and i did try moving it too to see you know and i might try it again at some point but well, it seems like your island out there is one of the crow roosting places oh my gosh yes i see if I come out for, if I'm out at sunset anywhere along the kind of waterfront, Seawalk, Crescent Bay area, whether that's on the bridge or out at the park, you see, I see just flocks of crows all going in that there's, direction. There's hundreds of them that come out to the island. I don't know exactly where their roost is. I think it's kind of on the north end of the island near the dock, but up above. Um, but I'll see them sometimes. They'll all be out on the beach. You know, they'll fly out. They'll all be out on the beach. I mean, literally hundreds of crows. And then in mass, you know, they'll go up into the forest back there. It is pretty interesting. It would be kind of, I, I'd be curious if you had a recorder, if you went out there as like, how long are they chattering to each other and mm-hmm. what kind of calls are they making and that sort of thing. I would be curious about. Um, I think there's been, you know, and that's, like sizable for here. I don't know of any larger sort of crow roosts around Sitka in particular, but in some places there are thousands of crows that right. gather. I think there was something in the news recently in California about a community that was inundated with thousands of crows. And and I think there's a well-known place in Washington, Bothell maybe, where mm. there's a, an, a communal co- crow roost that huh. has thousands, maybe 10,000 crows that'll come in and roost, which is... um. Yeah, it's a lot of crows. Yeah. Um, of course, they're probably coming from a much larger area. And there they have a lot of suburban, you know, urban suburban uh, areas to, to be foraging as mm-hmm. well as the shorelines. And here they seem to mostly, you know, I see them in yards a lot. And I see them, you know, in lawns. And I see them in um, on the beaches. That yeah. seems to be the places that they, they focus their attention here. Um, which actually reminds me, earlier this year, during we so we had that cold snap and stuff started to melt and i went by the sheldon jackson campus lawn and not for the first time there was just like bunches of ravens out there hmm. and crows and they were all kind of picking at stuff and what was a little strange is that there were also ducks out there uh doing hmm. the same thing i was like that's weird so i stopped and i looked and on top of the ice even so i'm not quite sure how it all worked like the ground was frozen but it was wet uh, so somehow these these uh, they were crane fly larvae, oh, and I saw I saw like 
half a dozen of them in just a little like square foot. So these birds were all out there picking up these crane fly larvae that had presumably been flooded out of the ground mm. as, as the huh. lower ground maybe was frozen oh, still. Right. And so Acting the water like permafrost. Yeah, something something was going on there that anyway was forcing these up and they were actually on top of the snow and ice, which I thought was pretty interesting. And the yeah, the birds know what's up. So if you see, and I think I've heard that when crows will or uh, ravens will thatch your lawn for you, so to mm-hmm. so, sort of, <laughs> you know, and you'll see these lawns. I've noticed it especially at the post office here in Sitka, but right. you know, all the moss is sort of like pulled up out of the, that. The ravens are going for crane fly larvae mm, uh, is what right. I've heard, and I haven't actually you know seen that myself specifically, but um, it. Wouldn't surprise me, which then makes me wonder, like, how much, how many fly larvas are in the lawns? There must be Probably just lots, lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it is, it is fascinating, all the things uh, that are out there. Um, I know that uh, it's been a while. One of the things that we have often talked about is the Natural History Seminar Series, which has been on a bit of a, cert, uh, certainly mm. been in a hiatus <laughs> for in-person stuff. You, I know you were able to sort of tag along with the um, some of the virtual talks that happened out of Juno. Right, the evenings at Egan. Evenings at Egan over the last couple of years. But um, what's the what's the status for, for the coming months and, and this year? Well, for- well, I'm happy to announce, I don't want to even predict what's going to happen with anything, but I do have some news that um, Tuesday Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, what is that? So two days from when this is airing. Yeah. Tuesday, February 15th at 7 p.m. So it's a different day than if you even remember what day we used to have them and a slightly different time. But 7 p.m. this Tuesday, um, the Sitka Sound Science Fellow. Research residency fellow. It's like that just trips off my tongue. You can tell. Courtney Hart, there we go, (laughs) is going to give a talk called How Harmful Algal Blooms Impact Southeast Alaska Shellfish. And that is over Zoom. So you don't have to worry about anything and or whatever. Um, You don't have to leave your house, basically. (laughs) And but you do need to register. Um, for this this particular talk. This is the first one I've set up myself and I followed the evenings at Egan model where you, you register and then you get the link um, for it. So, and the easiest way to register for it if you're not already on the, the seminar list is to go to Sitka Sound Science Center's website. And if you just look a little bit towards the bottom of the page, um, there's a link um, for the talk and you open up that page and the link to register is there. So it'll have you, you know, sign up, you'll use your name and your email. I don't think it asks, it shouldn't ask you anything else about yourself. Um, and then once you do that, the link will be um, sent to you for the talk. Um, yeah, I decided it, well, one, I, I wanted to go with zoom just because it's less complicated for me, for people, university has, has, set rules about how, you know, people are congregating and I didn't want to have to enforce that. (laughs) I mean, it's not like I disagree with it, but it just was one more step. And I'm like, hey, we're used to Zoom things. So we're we're going with Zoom until it's easy not to. So it would transition back to having some seminars, local seminars, but initially over over Zoom. And crossing fingers at some point in the not too distant future, we'll be able to join again 
all in the same room. But I have to admit, I've gotten incredibly lazy. <laughs> and I've kind of enjoyed, that's one thing that I, I will say that has been a little bit of a benefit. Not that this has been a great, you know, two years as far as, you know, social interaction and all that. But one of the things that was, was kind of cool was that I can listen to seminars from anywhere. You know, as long as I'm willing to either get up super early or whatever. Um, and that, that's been a gift because oftentimes, you know, you have to travel someplace. You know, I've been able to listen to the New York Botanical Garden seminars and the Alaska Bird Conference had some great seminars. Um, again, that was based in Anchorage, virtually based in Anchorage, and you could listen, sign up and listen. So, Well, it would be nice if there was, because I agree, yeah, it's nice to be able to follow along, participate in a virtual way with, with many of those events that are happening and the technology is there to support that. Right. But it is also nice to be able to be in totally. person and see the, see the uh, talk, uh, you, you know, there in, in the room together. So yeah, I, I am never going to disagree with that. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's ways to do, to do a little bit of both. I certainly know that it's, especially many of them don't actually do recordings, but I appreciate it when there yeah, are recordings some available do. Yeah. so that, uh, I can listen. And I'll, I'll check in with the speaker and see if it's okay if I record. Um, and, and then I will. Um, so it's one of those that you, you are, don't panic. If you're, you will be muted when you enter the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's always, that, that can be one of the awkward, uh, awkward things that and, happens occasionally. <laughs> yeah. I actually think that that's easier for people. Cause then you're like, don't have to worry when you're, you know, swearing at your computer, trying to get it to work. It's like, we won't hear that. You can say whatever you need to say. Um, and then you're there. So if you would like to listen to the upcoming Natural History Seminar series, it is Tuesday, two days from when this is airing on Sunday. So Tuesday, the 15th of yes. February. 7 p.m. With Courtney Hart speaking about harmful algal blooms and shellfish. And you don't, it's not like you have to register a day ahead of time, but sometimes it's nice to, to give yourself a little bit of leeway in case, you know, there's issues with what goes into your spam folder and all that sort of stuff. And if you run into any trouble, you can always email me at klabounty at alaska.edu. Um, I'm sure you can also call the Science Center. Um, so this is a joint seminar sponsored by UAS and the Science Center. Do you have any others in the works uh, going forward? or is In this my kind mind, of, yeah. I've got some. You've got some ideas for <laughs> I, things? Actually, Pat Druckenmiller gave a really, really super good talk. He, Pat is the probably super well-known um, now. He's been on NOVA, right, with the Arctic dinosaur finds and the Denali dinosaur finds. Um, that was actually a super, it was a wonderful show. Um, but he gave a talk. He's a curator, sorry, he's a curator. Actually, he's the head of the museum now. He's the director of the museum now. Museum of the North, North and, and Fairbanks. Fairbanks. Yes, UAF. Actually, it's UA, so it's it's not just UAF. Um, anyway, he gave a great talk for the, the Alaska Bird Conference on basically the the <laughs> the the millions of years that birds have lived in Alaska. So basically that transition, looking at dinosaurs to birds, but with that focus of that relationship between them. And it was absolutely spectacular talk. So I'm hoping I can talk him into giving that talk, um, at least virtually for us, which, which is easier. You know, gosh, think about how green that is, right? We're not flying people <laughs> in to give talks. And it's also more convenient. There's probably some speakers that we could never get. Yeah. Um, just because of logistics and all that. But I'm hoping to get that arranged. You know, I'm, I'm definitely open to ideas. If people have suggestions, just shoot me an email. 
Nice. Well, yeah, I look forward to hearing some of those. And I guess that does raise the question, did any dinosaurs actually evolve into birds in Alaska? Or that, that I don't think it here? quite works that way. Well, I mean, it's like they evolved somewhere, right? So I mean, that, that process, there are... I'm not... There are actually dinosaurs in the line that are ancestral to birds. I'm pretty sure that are in fact in Alaska because that was part of the premise for the talk, right? Right. Um, but I, I, names are are going to escape me right now. So it's different lineages within. Well, and that's where I'm. You know, one of the things that I'm curious about. I, I know that, for example, in very old areas where you have have relatively stable habitats over millions, tens of millions of years in some cases. Uh, Southern Africa, I think, is, is an example of that, where there's been enough time that there's quite a, a, a diversity that is on each mountain is different because they've had time to just evolve right. in place and, and become different, essentially. Um, they're not moving around like birds are. Right. Alaska's fairly dynamic. Well, right. And that's, <laughs> so that's just the thing. And that's the question is, right, is have, have there been birds whose who's evolution essentially happened in fuller in part um, in in this northern region, you know, maybe not Alaska yeah, specifically. I don't but, believe uh, that wasn't addressed and I right. can't answer that question. I, I wouldn't expect you to be able to. It's just a, it's just a question it that, would be that interesting. is interesting. Because when I, I spoke with Hans, Hans Tavison, for example, right. he was like, well, the, the early ancestors of whales developed, like they evolved in um, you know, kind of India, the, the fossils Pakistan, are Pakistan and that's and where India they find a lot of them. Yeah. And then there was, at, at that time, I think it was before India, maybe it, it even... Well, oh, China might win for birds. Hit, hit in there. But it so could just also kind of, be just that's where the fossils are, too. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's kind of yeah. tough to tell. You, you know, you have to have both the, the proper sort of rock to find the fossils for fossils to even be there. So, I mean... Yeah, there's lots of places that obviously organisms lived, and we're never going to find the fossils because right. we don't have the right. But they, it seems like they do have. I mean, South America has the largest has an extreme diversity of birds. So I think there's been a lot of not glaciated for not the most glaciated, part, right? So th- th- there's a number of factors that contribute to that. And and um, yeah, anyway, just interesting questions. If I get a chance to talk to Pat Dreckham Miller again, maybe I'll ask him about. Ask well, him hopefully about you that. will. Yeah, he's fascinating. If if you're able to watch Nova, that was a really good program. And there's actually another one on Alaska on the these methane. Um, craters that have formed. Mm. I haven't watched it yet, so I can't speak to it, but it's kind of cool to get some real, like, Alaska coverage. Now, granted, we're talking about the interior and the Arctic, but still, it's Alaska. Well, there is something, there's a, a, a another virtual conference thing sort of set to talk about Southeast Alaska, but that'll be happening in May. I just heard about that and saw a little announcement for it, but some folks have been doing some geology work here uh, in in the region are setting that up. And so I'm sure we'll be able to share more about that, but something else to consider. And I think right. they're looking at kind of the biogeography and geological history of Southeast Alaska as the theme of the three-day virtual right. conference. So they don't have anybody set up that I know of. They don't have a schedule mm-hmm. yet of speakers. Right. So I don't know what the topics yeah. are going to be specifically, but i um, looking forward to being able to listen to some of those Hopefully. Right. My advice to people is just to keep your eyes open. There's so many different places around the country and around the state um, that are doing these virtual talks that you can jump on in all sorts of different, you know, topic areas. Um, and it, I, I find listening to a seminar on um, Zoom much less 
painful than a meeting on Zoom, <laughs> and which may just speak more to about my my idea about meetings rather than seminars. But yeah, I I kick back, get my knitting out, and uh, I have my cup of tea and um, listen. And yeah, I've gotten to listen to some really cool things. Nice. Well, we are kind of at the big early part of the year and one of the things i like to do in the winter is well one of the things is catching up from last year which i'm still doing um i have been posting my pictures and observations into iNaturalist uh finishing up there and it's it's looking like i might actually i was thinking i wouldn't quite get to 5000 observations but for 2021 but it's looking like i'm going to get there but simultaneously i'm also thinking about okay what am i going to be doing for this year and uh, I another milestone for me was I, I crossed 2,500 unique taxa um, recently. And my brother some time ago said something to me along the lines of, he's like, well, why don't you go for 5,000 by 50? And I was like, uh, <laughs> he's a puppy. Folks. Yeah. <laughs> 5,000 by 50. That sounds, that sounds kind of intense, but as things, as things do that uh, now I'm still like, well, maybe could I, could I do 5,000 taxa by 50? Probably not, but maybe I'll maybe I'll try. I'm certainly not going to get there this year, but it has been motivational in a directional sense of like, okay, like what could I get? And for me, like there's a lot of, you know, we have almost I think we might have over three thousand taxa in Sitka already. Uh, so there's some eight hundred or so. Yeah, so there's over three thousand. There's some eight hundred that I haven't seen that other people have. Right. So there's all of those, and and so I'm you know thinking about well lichens and bryophytes and and what sort of insects, things insects things to look invertebrates at invertebrates in the water in the water all of those things algae. <laughs> um, but that's that's me. I'm a little focused on on sort of documenting biodiversity. I guess is the fancy way to put it. But numbers, uh, numbers, numbers <laughs> is is part of that. Yes. But what are the what what sort of things are you know, you're dreaming of in, in longer days and warmer weather? Uh, actually, you know me, is, is there a trip in it? Um, I've been, I really kind of would like to go to the Pribilofs. It's a place I haven't been yet in the state. And there's, you know, different birds. It's different habitat. It's it, And like, I know when I talked about the gamble trip, it, it's really more about seeing the whole place. So I like to see that particular ecosystem in the middle of the Bering Sea with its its plants and fur seals and different birds. So that's kind of something, if I can pull it off, I'll, I'll try and do that this year. But um, I think my only other thing I really want to do, I mean, there's tons of things that I want to do, but the other thing I, I think I'm going to make happen is to get to Gustavus in June when the cypripediums or the lady slippers are blooming. And, and that's always like, you know, I'm going to try to be there at the right time. Those are fancy. Those fancy are flowers. fancy flowers, yeah. fancy orchid flowers. So they're one of the ones that have, um, I don't know what all the bits are, but they have this big lower lip thing that, mm-hmm. that forms kind of like a, a sack almost. Yep. And then, and these fancy trailing off to the left and right, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of depends on like, the, I think the species. They're <laughs> and then, and then one up above. But yeah, yeah so they're they're pretty gorgeous. I've seen you know Alaska cypripediums, you know, up north, um, up in the boreal forest, um, but I actually haven't seen any in southeast. I know they're they're here. They're not very common, um, but I I have this this urge to go to. Uh, Gustavus and see those. Yeah, most of our orchids here locally in Sitka specifically are not especially showy. We we do have the Calypso fairy slipper orchids on some of the not not along the road system, but on some of the islands around. Quite gorgeous. Uh, um, and they're they're a, a showy flower as well. 
but the little ones are are still worth looking at. I oh. really like them. I, I yeah. like you know some of them. Yes, you like... might want a hand lens. Um, and if you if you fill the hand lens with those, you know they they're they're lovely. But they're yeah they don't have that like ooh that's a you know that's so obviously an orchid. Um, the fairy slippers are an orchid. Yeah, and I suppose the the um, the uh, um. Merten- or Coraloriza. Right. I can't remember the common name for those coral, coral roots. roots. Yeah, coral root orchids that are in the forests around are those are pretty they have some colors and stuff. Not not the big the showy flowers. The bog orchids. And those ones are kind of green or white flowers, so they're a little less kind the, of striking the dilatata the they have a smell. Yeah, the, a, a the nice bog fragrance. Rain, yeah, the those are really nice. Orchid, yeah. Um anyway, but yeah, so I, I'm I'm chasing those those plants. Yeah, it seems like a number. Cebus is interesting, anyway. Yeah, the the forelands there have have a number of of things that would be, well, they just aren't here. Right, um, it'll so be a giant sneeze fest for me because it, it's it's a grassland. Oh. Um. <laughs> there's also there's another species of uh, uh, of paintbrush there that oh, you should crimactus right. that, that you I'll try and for. find. And yeah, it's interesting. The number of the local sort of iNaturalist enthusiasts have have a hankering to visit various places in southeast Alaska. And expand the, uh, I guess, expand the reach of the Sitka iNaturalist cohort. Um, right. <laughs> Sitka's like the right, the star, basically. For iNaturalist. Other places is, do not like to admit how far ahead we are. It's a, uh, we have, <laughs> we have a closet competition with a number of places. Some folks, yeah, it's, it is interesting to chat with people. And, and yeah, Sitka has been a little bit, um, well, in fact, speaking of milestones, I believe you passed a thousand species in Southeast, Southeast Alaska recently. Very nice. Thank yeah. You had to tell me because I had no idea. Yeah, some people don't <laughs> keep track of their numbers quite I, so I mean, much, I look but, every once in a while and go, yeah, that's fun. But for me, the big fun thing about iNaturalist is actually the map. Yeah. I like seeing oh yeah i've been here and there and you know it's it's also a global map so that that part is part of the fun for me i like seeing the map also but not because i see spots all over but because i see such a density of spots yes in, in mine still area. has that density but it's like oh there there's my trip up the hall road there's the Kobuk dunes there's gamble there's greece you know <laughs> it's just yeah that's actually reminds me of one of the things that i'm I sometimes look at this time of year is looking at the iNaturalist map and looking at the gaps. Like if you zoom mm, in, mm-hmm. if you're if you're out, you just see this massive, massive observations around Sitka. But if you zoom in, you see that unsurprisingly, they're concentrated around trails. And yeah. so you'll see lines of observations along each of the trails. But there's these relatively large gaps in between. And I'm... It's like, well, what's there? Probably nothing unusual, but there could be interesting rock outcrops or things like that, especially as they start to uh, become a little more serious about trying mm. to get more bryophytes right. and lichens in particular. Like those are the sort of microhabitats that um, you can sometimes find right. different species on. So I'm going to make a suggestion to you. I mean, I've already made this suggestion to you, but I'll make it to the world. Um, if you're going to do iNaturalist, for bryophytes and mosses, those sorts of things. And for lichens, please, oh, please, take a sample. <laughs> you know, write the naturalist number on it because there are no doubt will be more pictures or more information that people will ask you for, um, particularly if you want a, a, a name on it. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm one of those kind of reluctant people that I'm like, well, obviously there's some that I just call. It's like, oh, yeah, that is Hylocomium splendens. That's stair-step moss. But there's others. I'm like, well, it's probably this. But I'm a big wuss, and I won't put that down. Yeah, and it's an interesting you know, balance there is, is deciding. Because I, I do 
collect stuff. And I have boxes of bags with numbers and dates on them and, you know, possible names and nothing to do with those because <laughs> because I'm not doing the microscope work or right. whatever. And and there's nobody that, I, I mean, I can't afford to pay a, a, a bryologist to, to do that. <laughs> you, you, you look at some of them and usually you end up with those. Um, it, I, I give them to you. But, but there are, one of the ways that I make a distinction is if I can get back to it easily, I'm less likely to collect it. Because if I can get decent pictures when I'm there, and then and then I find out later, oh, I should have collected this. Right, I can get back to it. If I'm out in the far field, and I'm like, uh, this is my only chance. Right, I'm, you've I'm gotta, not getting you've back here. You gotta grab some. Yeah, um, and it's it's handy for. I mean, there's there's someone whose whose stuff I will give them some IDs on, but they will answer my question. So I'm like, mm-hmm. well, was it this? Was it that? You know, was it K plus? Was <laughs> and so that's actually super handy for me if the person has that and they're also will you know, willing and interested in looking at the microscopic or chemical characteristics. But that is not going to be everybody. No, and, and no, you don't, it doesn't have to be Yeah, either. and you don't have to be inclined to get um, things to species names no. either. Just whatever catches your eye. And if it if if it grows on you, you know, bryophytes are, um, they're, it, it's been interesting. The uh, United Kingdom, UK, England has, I guess, like a several hundred year history of natural history being kind of a thing that people do. Very much so. And so I was reading about bryophilus fungi, which is fungi that grow on mosses, basically, and liverworts. And there's a guy in, I I found him through iNaturalist. He lives in the UK and he's sort of the informal uh, uh, curator of bryophilus fungi in England. And so there's books published about the bryophilus fungi of Europe uh, and then, and then he's they're they're like, and they're, and so there are, are little natural history groups. They have lichen outings. They have they have moss outings. Like their whole thing is they're going out regularly to their little parklands or whatever. It'd be like us going out to Star Gavin or something. Say, hey, mm-hmm. today we're looking at lichens and mosses, and everybody's got their hand lenses and their curiosity, right. and and people have their own collections that they make. You know, they keep their own mini herbarium of of collections that they've done. So it's a it's a it's an interesting culture that that is not sort of our, our default here right, in the same right. way. But one thing that's handy about collections, and I'm going to go back to a, a something that I think it was this week that it came up. There was this sphagnum that both of us had, you know, IDs on it. And um, we got called out, you know, because the picture, great. You could see that it was a sphagnum, but, and, you know, it could be any one of like six or more. <laughs> and the dude was like, I can't see the features that you're using to call this this particular species. And it was nice to be able to go, well, down here in my box of, of sphagnum, curated sphagnum collections, I have those collections and they've actually been verified by a sphagnum expert. So, I mean, I don't know if this person ever responded back, but it made me go, yeah. <laughs> and I could then go back and do the the photos from the microscope, but I, I feel pretty confident in what it was um, because the time I already spent in identifying it. But I totally get why I was like, I can't verify this for you. Yeah, and <laughs> in that particular case, he thought it looked more like one of the other related species. And so that made it, um, and that's why I think he disagreed with it. A lot of times I'll see something I'm like, I'm not sure that's what it is, but I don't, I don't know. And I'll just kind of let it go. Or I might put a comment. It's like, I'm not sure, but I don't actually disagree. In other cases, I'm like, that's definitely not what you called it. Right. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's not that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll do that. It is, it's an interesting thing. You know, we can 
go as far into it as you like. There are definitely people that that get way into specific groups and mm-hmm. insects and things, and and that's fantastic because those folks often help. You know, if I try for this five thousand taxa thing, I'm going to need all the help oh, yeah. I can get. I mean, it's like. It, it's taken me 20 years, essentially, to get to 2,500. And if I'm thinking, like, in the next 5 to 10 years, I want to get that many more. Just thinking about all the different groups, the lichens, and, and how challenging some of those groups are. It's like, I'm just going to need all the help I can get. You know, I can help myself out by getting good documentation and that kind of thing. But but it's the people who are – there's a number of folks on iNaturalist who are, like, really into flies, for example. Or right. into – I just posted a springtail. I found a springtail on a tree mm-hmm. uh, yesterday when I was out in the rain. I was like, i got to make my observations to keep my streak up. So I stopped at Castle <laughs> Hill, and I noticed this lichen on the mountain ash tree, and it was kind of white. And, and it looked sort of like it had some of the little – saucer-shaped things like okralechias do, but it was white. The apothecia? Yeah, but I mean, they're kind of saucer-shaped. But some of them look like they were more exploding more, and so Hmm, I was like, well, that looks different. So I thought, well, I'll take a picture of that. I put my camera up to take a picture. There was a little springtail right there. I was like, oh, Hmm. well, and it was moving around. You know, who knows what the... I guess they must be able to freeze because they aren't big enough to like burrow, especially when they're on the trees. But he was out active, and so he cooperated enough for it cooperated enough and i got some pictures of it and posted them yesterday evening and by this morning i had a id of you know it was nice. it was um entomobria um nivalis cosmopolitan springtail so hmm. that was a, a it's always fun to like even have these little obscure things i know paul norwood has been posting desmids uh, with little microscopic um green algae kind of things, although I think they might be in the chromistas, I don't know. But they, they're green, and they're algae-like things. Right. <laughs> um, we'll just say that. I'm not sure what their taxonomy is off the top of my head. Um, but there's people out there that are helping identify those right. as well. So there's people into these things, and it's it's a great way to sort of explore you know, what's out there. Right. So grab your group and dive into it. Grab your group. And there's, yeah, there's already, there's lots of groups groups and there's (laughs) folks in Sitka that are interested. If you just start posting on iNaturalist, um, you will, you will catch the attention of, of us that are already doing it certainly. And you can see the other observations. And I mean, that's one thing I do is I see things that people post. I'm like, Oh, I want to go see that. So Mm -hmm. then I have things to go look for. So it's a nice way to, uh, I don't know, for me, again, it's it's kind of helps me motivate to get outside, left to my own devices. I might tend to sit on the couch a lot because I'm not super kinetic, but I am motivated by these things. And so it gets me outside um, throughout the year even, but certainly in the summertime, uh, reasons to, to get out and explore and you know, a lot of this stuff, it's not like you have to go up high mountains to find, Mm-mm. you know. There's a lot down at low elevations. Just in your yard, literally, if you stop and take a look. So definitely encourage people to do that. Well, as we are winding up here, is there anything else you want to mention before we finish up? One thing I've really enjoyed this year is that all the turnstones that have been out mm. on the islands, that's been really fun. Um, we don't see big groups of them all the time every year, but this year there's been groups of between like 40 and 75 um, out on the island working the shores. And I'm not sure what's what's different this year, um, but they're definitely out there. So that's been really fun to kind of... Um, not just see them, but usually I hear them long before I see them. I, I'm getting better and better at birding my ear. And we'll see if that, you know, that springtime's coming. I know, we'll see how, how I do. But yeah, the, the really being in one place a lot for the last two years, I spent a lot of time outside and I spent more time listening. 
um, listening and then watching. So I think actually that helped um, train my ear a little bit better. I was like, oh, that nasally one's the ruby crown kinglet, you know, which I hadn't really noticed before. And probably because I, I am the more kinetic, you know, person in this conversation. So, yes. yeah, being in one place outside all the time was actually turned out, you know, wasn't all bad. <laughs> wasn't all great, but there were some benefits. Nice. Well, thanks for coming in today. Been listening to a conversation I recorded. If you're listening to this live on the radio yesterday with Kitty Labounty, I want to thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. And as always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.